0: from Western Australia's past. Hello and welcome to Wild, stories from Western Australia's past. I'm your host, Carly Florison. I'm a writer, a storyteller and just a bit of a history nerd. Thanks so much for joining me today. As usual, I've got another really fascinating story for you. This is the story of a gold rush, a dangerous mine, a little detour to talk about a US president and a Kalgoorlie barmaid, and then a daring rescue that was decades before its time. This is the story of the rescue of Modesto Varaschetti. Before we get into the story, I'd just like to say thanks so much for all the great feedback on the last episode. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. The story of the wreck of the Batavia is such a fascinating and horrifying story, and I really enjoyed researching it myself, so I'm glad that people enjoyed listening to that one. If you haven't heard it yet, do go back and tune in because it's a really interesting story. I'd like to start out today by paying my respects to the First Nations people of this country and in particular to the Noongar people of of the Esperance area, which is where I'm recording this podcast, and the Wongatha people of the Kalgoorlie and Goldfields area, which is where this story takes place. The First Nations people have a connection to this land that goes back tens of thousands of years, and I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, right at the outset of this podcast. So this story takes place in 1907, on the 19th of March, when a thunderstorm hit the goldfields. In the rapid downpour, water poured into the West Australia mine at Bonnyvale, which is located 12 kilometres from Kugadi. Now this particular mine is located in a bit of a valley in between two hills. 160 men were down working in the mine when the downpour hit and the mine shaft very quickly filled up with water. All of the men scrambled towards the exits and all but one of the men made it to safety. One man, Modesto Varaschetti, was trapped underground. The main shaft of the mine was flooded and so the other miners presumed that Varischetti had drowned in the floodwaters. But then, after the men had given up any hope of seeing Varischetti again, they heard tapping coming from inside the mine. It was Varischetti, they realised, trapped in an air pocket. But it was 1907, and they were in an isolated mine in the goldfields. What could they do? Well, before we get into the story of this rescue operation, let me just give you a little bit of background information about the goldfields. In 1893, Irish prospectors Paddy Hannon, Tom Flanagan and Dan O'Shea found gold near what would become Kalgoorlie, sparking off a gold rush. Now, the gold rush is absolutely something that I'm going to revisit another day, as there are so many great stories to tell about this time. But the short story is that there was a huge influx of men to the area, all set on finding their fortunes. People came from all over the world to join in the hunt for gold. In 1891, the population of Europeans in Western Australia was 49,782 people. By 1895, the population of European people in Western Australia had doubled to over 100,000 people. You're probably familiar with the town of Coolgardie, which these days is a small town of less than a 1,000 people. During the gold rush, Coolgardie became a booming town and it was in 1898 the third largest town in the colony of Western Australia after Perth and Fremantle. And just as a small aside, if you get the chance, you should absolutely go and visit Kulgadi. It's a beautiful historic town with some really gorgeous buildings, and the main street is wide enough for an entire camel train to turn around. To begin with, most of the men came to the goldfields by ship, landing at Esperance and then making their way to the goldfields by horse, camel, bicycle, or on foot with a wheelbarrow. Mines were opened up throughout the area, and soon the whole region was booming. In 1897, the train line from Perth to Kalgoorlie was opened and even more people started to arrive in the area. Of course, it's a dry area and soon water became almost as rare and valuable as the gold that the men were hunting for. Men were dying of thirst quite regularly in the outback. Of course, I say men because almost all of the prospectors were men, but there were the odd few women prospectors as well. But that's a story for another day. One of the men who came to the goldfields was Modesto Varaschetti, also known as Charlie. Varaschetti was 32 years old and he was from Gorno in Lombardy, northern Italy. He was a widower. His wife had died giving birth to their fifth child. And afterwards, the local church had suggested to Varaschetti that he go to Australia to earn money to support his children. So he did arriving in Western Australia in 1900 and going to work in the mines. From there, he sent home his earnings to support his children who were back at home in Italy. When the thunderstorm hit, Varischetti had been working in a rise, an area where the shaft of the mine travels upwards. He tried to get out, struggling against the water that was rushing into the mine, but he couldn't. He was trapped in the rise. Varischetti was resigned to his fate he was pretty sure that he was a dead man. All he could do, he said later on, was to tap on the structure of the mine and hope that somebody might hear him, and then wait to die. And, of course, they did hear him. The men above ground tried to think of a solution. They quickly rushed a high-capacity steam pump to the mine, and they began pumping water out as fast as they could, but by nightfall the water level in the mine had only been lowered by a few centimetres. The local mining inspector was a man named Josiah Crabb. He reported that clearing the water out of the mine shaft would take up to a week and Varaschetti was very unlikely to survive that long. There was no hope of a rescue. Newspapers in Australia and then around the world picked up the story and began reporting on the situation daily. They were calling Varaschetti the entombed man. Crab sent for any local mining engineers who might be able to help. One man that was sent for was a highly respected mining engineer, a man by the name of Herbert Hoover. Yes, that's a familiar name, and it's the same Herbert Hoover who went on to become the President of the United States of America in 1929. Hoover, who was originally from Iowa, studied geology at University in California and worked in mining-related jobs in California. In 1897, the British mining engineering firm, Berwick, Mooring & Co., invited Hoover to undertake mine examination and exploration work in the WA goldfields. At this stage, he was only 23 years old. So, in 1897, Hoover went to Coolgardie. Incidentally, when Hoover arrived in Albany on his way to the goldfields, he had to quarantine for two weeks as there had been an outbreak of smallpox on the ship that he had been on. Now this will be a very, very familiar circumstance these days where we have to quarantine when we come into the country for 14 days. So it's not the first time that that sort of thing has happened. Hoover was involved in the development of the mine that became known as Sons of Golia. The mine was started by three Welshmen, the Sons of Gualia that the mine was named after, but they didn't have enough capital to develop the mine. Hoover became very certain that this was a promising mine, and so he convinced his company to buy stakes in the mine, and after it opened, he became the mine's superintendent. The mine, under Hoover's supervision, became a spectacular mining success. Hoover himself was known as a bit of a hard taskmaster. He made several changes to the miners' conditions including increasing working hours, stopping double time being paid on Sunday, and stopping bonuses for working on wet grounds. He hired contract labour, mostly European migrants who were willing to work for lower wages, which then brought him into conflict with the miners' union. But interestingly, while Hoover was in the area, he was a regular guest at the Kalgoorlie Palace Hotel, which is a hotel and pub which was opened in 1897 and is still operating today. And if you're ever in Kalgoorlie, I strongly recommend going to visit it. It's a beautiful historic building. Legend has it that while Hoover was in Kalgoorlie, he fell in love with a barmaid at the Palace Hotel and wrote her a love poem. When Hoover left Kalgoorlie, he gave the hotel a parting gift, a huge elaborately carved mirror, which can still be seen in the foyer of the hotel today. There's an excerpt from the love poem, which is pretty terrible, to be honest, hanging on the wall next to the mirror in the hotel foyer. And as I said, legend has it that Hoover wrote this poem for the Kalgoorlie barmaid that he fell in love with. Here's a little bit of the poem. And I spent my soul in kisses, crushed upon your scarlet mouth. Oh, my red-lipped, sun-browned sweetheart, dark-eyed daughter of the South. There's much much more of the poem, but I'll spare you from it because it's really rather awful. If you're a real sucker for punishment, I'll put a link to the rest of the poem in the in the notes for this podcast so you can go and look it up yourself. This is a really great story, the crabby fu- future US president and the Kalgoorlie barmaid. But unfortunately, it's almost certainly not true. Hoover married his college sweetheart, Lou Henry, in 1899. He was never known for writing poetry and was not known as a romantic at all, and the love poem is likely written by a poet and sometimes swindler who was in Kalgoorlie around the same time as Hoover, a man called Grant Hervey. Anyway, I'm getting off track. That's just a little bit of a detour. Even though Hoover left Kalgoorlie in December of 1898, he returned to help inspect and reorganise the mine in 1902, 1903, which is the year that his first son was born, 1905 and 1907, which is the year that his second son was born. And keep in mind that he was travelling by ship in those days, so they were certainly not short journeys. His poor wife. But anyway, that means that Hoover was here in the goldfields when the disaster occurred, and Varischetti was trapped in the mine underground. But even though Hoover was a mining engineer, the solution to Varaschetti's problem did not come from Hoover. It came from the mining inspector's son, seven-year-old John Crabb, who suggested to his father, why don't you use a diver? So Crab quickly put the word out and found two divers who were in Kalgoorlie, Frank Hughes and Thomas Hearn. Understandably, there was no diving equipment in Kalgoorlie as Kalgoorlie is landlocked and the nearest coastline is 400 hundred kilometres away. The nearest diving equipment was 560 and sixty kilometres away from Kalgoorlie in Fremantle. So the men at the mine sent an urgent message to Fremantle. Can you send diving equipment and divers as soon as possible? The WA government organised a special train which brought the diving equipment to Koolgaardie. It was normally a 12-hour run on the train, but they went as fast as possible and they managed to cut two hours off their usual time. In doing so, they set a world record for the speed for this distance, a a record that would stand for many years. When the train finally reached Kulgadi, they rushed the diving equipment to Bonnyvale with their fastest horses. During this time period, divers used long hoses to bring them compressed air from the surface which was pumped by hand into the diver's helmet. They wore waterproof helmets and diving suits. And I'm sure you can picture what these look like. Just think of the uh, pictures that you might have seen of early diving equipment with those sort of fishbowl helmets and rubbery waterproof suits. And if you're interested, I'll put a photo of the divers preparing to go down into the mine on my website. Frank Hughes was the first diver to go down into the mine. By this stage, Varischetti had been trapped down there for four days. They weren't even sure if he was still alive. Hughes did a few exploratory dives and he didn't manage to reach Varischetti until day six. But Hughes and the other divers took him a lamp, matches, food and letters of encouragement, including a letter from his brother Giovanni Varischetti. Apparently, when Varaschetti first saw the divers down in his underground hole, he was frightened of them, which is understandable. Can you just imagine what they looked like? Apparently he thought the diver was a demon. After a few more trips down to take supplies to Varaschetti, finally, Hughes told the men on the surface that Varaschetti wasn’t going to last much longer. He was getting much weaker. I imagine that the oxygen supply down there was probably getting quite quite low. The two divers did another trip down to him where they shared a cigarette and then tied a rope around Varaschetti's waist to help guide him out. The rise that De- Varaschetti was located in was about 1,000 feet underground or roughly 300 metres. They had been pumping water all of this time and so the water level had finally dropped enough. Hughes had to guide Varaschetti out of the mine, leading him by the rope around his waist and Varaschetti had to fight his way through mud and sludge all the way through and water that was waist deep in some parts of the mine. But in other parts of the mine, it was lapping against the ceiling and almost so deep that he could only just breathe. Finally, late on the ninth day of Varaschetti's ordeal, after 206 hours underground, Varaschetti emerged from the mine shaft. He was pale and weak, but still alive. There was a crowd waiting to greet him, waving the Union Jack and the Italian flag. The men who were involved in the rescue operation were all cheered loudly and apparently Hughes was mobbed and kisses were showered upon him by the women who were present. Varaschetti refused to go to the hospital and instead he was taken to the mine manager's house where he was put to bed. He recovered fairly quickly from this ordeal. One week after his rescue, Varaschetti said, I feel grand now. My head is all right and talking does not make it ache. I intend to go to work in the mine again. And he did return to working in the mine for some years after this. Unfortunately, he later died of fibrosis, which is a lung disease that is almost certainly caused by the mining, at the age of 57. After the rescue, Hughes was awarded the Albert Medal for Bravery. The townsite site of Bonnyvale is now abandoned, but, of course, mining still goes on throughout the whole area. The Australian folk band Cloud Street recorded a song about the Varischetti rescue. The song was originally a folk song and the writer is unknown, but it's called Down in the Gold Mine and you can listen to it on Spotify or on YouTube. And that's the story of the rescue of Modesto Varischetti. Thank you so much for listening as I always say, I'd love to get your feedback. I really love getting feedback on these on these episodes. You can tell me what you liked or what you didn't like or even send me some corrections if I've got anything wrong. You can get in touch with me via social media. I'm on Twitter at Carly Florison or I'm on Facebook. Just search Carly Florison Writer. Uh, you can also get in touch with me via my website, which is www.wildwapodcast.com. And the sources for the information that I've used in this podcast are also on that website, along with a photo of the divers and a photo of Varischetti himself, and also a link to the terrible love poem if you really want to go and read the rest of it. You can also email me. I'm on wildwapodcast at gmail.com. I'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast, and please do subscribe so that you know when the next episodes are coming out. Just a quick shout-out to my brother, Micah Florison, for the music for the episode and Caitlin Edwards for the artwork. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate your company here. And stay tuned for another episode of Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past coming up really soon.